If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Sadly, multi-award winning writer Burt Bacharach has died at age 94. I have no idea who he is, but I'm told I have heard him in an elevator. Oh, R.I.P. Burt. Here's Scott Thompson. Here the sacks. All right, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to Hamilton Today. Uh, back on track playing the top 200 singers of all time, according to Rolling Stone. Uh, preempted, of course, as uh, Kurt so delicately, <laughs> delicately put, with the uh, passing of Burke Backrack yesterday at age 94. Van Morrison coming in at number 37. 37 on uh, Rolling Stone's top 200 singers of all time. Still looking for Celine Dion, but don't you worry. We're going to venture through the weeds until we see uh, some sort of reason as why she was not chosen. All right. Um, you know, this is pretty exciting. And, um, the premier up in Oshwigan, along with, uh, Christia Freeland, deputy prime minister. And once again, the love is just unbelievable between, uh, the deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland and, uh, premier Doug Ford. And, um, the good news just, uh, keeps on coming. And this not only great news for obviously Ontario Canadians, but also, uh, for First Nations uh, and, and indigenous communities, six nations and speci- specifically in Oshwigan, uh, as there is a new battery storage plant uh, going to be uh, constructed up there. Here's the premier earlier today uh, telling us what this project is all about. Once online in 2025, this project, the Oneida Energy Storage Project, will store up to 250 megawatts of electricity in lithium batteries during off-peak hours when demand is low and release it to our electricity grid when it's needed. It will more than double our province's energy storage resources and will provide enough electricity to power a city approximately the size of Oshawa. And I'm pleased to announce that our government has directed Ontario's electricity system operator to enter into a 20-year contract with Oneida Energy Storage Project so that this new facility will support our clean electricity system for years to come. And it's so exciting. Uh, and the premier speaking on the love and the togetherness that happens uh, when all levels of government uh, get together and get her done. This uh, solution, the Oneida Energy uh, Storage Project, is also another great example of the Team Ontario, Team Canada spirit at work. When business, all levels of government and First Nations come together, there's nothing we can't get done because our population is growing by 300,000 people every year as Ontario secures game-changing investments in our economy and as we become a world leader in the electric vehicle and the batteries of the future, we have to be innovative and we have to be bold to meet our energy needs. We're powering the future of Ontario. We're powering the future of our economy. 
All right, there you have it. There's the Premier out in Oshwigan earlier today, along with the Deputy Prime Minister. We're going to play a clip uh, from her in just a second. These all courtesy of Lisa Pileski in the CHML newsroom, who uh, was out there earlier today and on this story and uh, getting us uh, these clips. So we thank her very much for that. And uh, great work out there, Lisa. All right, here's uh, the Deputy uh, Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Christia Freeland, speaking about the jobs that this is going to create. This project is going to help create great jobs for people in Ontario. It will store and supply the clean electricity that our province needs, and it will help create economic opportunities for Indigenous communities like Six Nations. So there you have it. Uh, big news coming out of Six Nations, Ashwigan today, uh, where this battery storage facility. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what is that? I don't know. Because we all know that was the most difficult thing with uh, renewable energy is when you create it, it, it has to be consistent, right? So uh, if, uh, you know, the energy is coming in and it's not needed, the ability to store it somewhere, which is what this is obviously about. So we're going to try to uh, answer some of those questions coming up a little later on in the show uh, when we get some experts in here and uh, give you, we certainly just heard the political side of all of this and uh, six nations and the province and the feds all working together uh, at this project this seems to be like a win-win-win for everybody uh, involved and it's great to see it's great to hear it's great to see things uh, moving forward and uh, and I think this is another uh, example of that now as I said what is the technology angle what is the business angle how does this all fit into the pie those are all questions that, uh, you know, we have to obviously uh, find out uh, the answers to as we learn more about all of this and this technology uh, moving forward. So very exciting. And, of course, we'll talk more about that coming up a little later on in the show. SpaceX, Elon Musk in the news again, uh, lighting the fuse on another uh, set of rockets. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, the head of the CBC has seemed to got into a little bit of a verbal war with the leader of the conservative. Is that a good move? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, a new Leger poll. The overwhelming majority of Canadians uh, have no idea what the Just Transition plan is and what that means when transitioning the West specifically off of the energy industry that they are in. We'll try to get more answers there as well. It's all coming up on Hamilton today. Another story we were watching, SpaceX and uh, their ongoing uh, uh, steps towards the moon and, and further uh, lunar travel and exploration, a big step closer to sending its giant Starship spacecraft into orbit, completing a engine firing test on the launch pad on Thursday. What does that mean? Let's bring in Paul Delaney, Professor of Astronomy, Emeritus York University, with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Am indeed, Scott. Nice to be with you. Yeah, Paul, I know it's not necessarily where you like to go, but do you want to comment on the balloons that seem to be floating around <laughs> lately? Isn't it interesting that there's a lot more of these balloons that are making the headlines and people are recognizing them as balloons, not as unidentified aerial phenomena. So uh, it, it's curious that all of a sudden there's so much interest and we're finding these UAPs are actually human objects. So I, I think it does speak to the uh, degree of excitement that gets generated by UAP or UFO reports. But in reality, yeah, we're our own worst enemies at creating some of these things. 
It's kind of odd that here we are talking about uh, SpaceX and them firing up the Starship uh, rockets and such, like cutting-edge technology, and there's balloons floating around. <laughs> hey, they're very reliable and they don't cost a lot. <laughs> yeah, good point. All right, talk about what happened today on the launch pad. What is an engine firing test? What is this all about? Well, it's a prelude to make sure that everything about the rocket engine system is ready for launch and ready for the longer duration firing that will take the rocket and its payload into orbit. It's become pretty standard practice over the last few years, probably over the last 10 years now, for these types of rocket firings. We didn't see it happening during the shuttle era, but post-shuttle era, yeah, we take the rockets out to the pad, we give them a quick little burst, and then yeah, we make sure that everything is responsible as we're expecting, and then a day or two, or in this case, perhaps a few weeks later, we're going to light them all for a long duration, take a payload into orbit. So it's a necessary precursor these days to making sure your rocket is okay. I completely understand the reasons for doing this. Does this weaken a rocket in any way? How do you figure out, okay, just light it for this much time and then we'll shut it down? Well, it certainly shouldn't. Uh, the rocket is designed to take on a lot more force and a lot more uh, aerodynamic challenge than right. sitting on the launch pad for you know a few seconds of rocket launching. So, no, if, if the rocket is damaged from this, the rocket shouldn't have been on the launch pad in the first place. Right. So, no, seven seconds. And as you know, the Falcon 9, it does this now 10, 15, upwards to 20 times flying in the atmosphere. So, no, SpaceX has figured out how to build these vehicles very reliably which is excellent news as far as reusability is concerned. So uh, as I read down in this article, 31 of the 33 first stage booster engines ignited simultaneous, uh, simultaneously. Um, obviously, some didn't. Does, they said that wouldn't matter. That does is, explain this to us. Is that why there's the redundancy here? In part, yes. Certainly, uh, they want to know why the two didn't fire. One obviously had some off uh, off-color uh, reading, shall we say, just prior to the mm -hmm. launch, oh, or sorry, the uh, test, and they turned that off. So it never had the opportunity to fire. One obviously did fire, and it didn't behave itself, and it turned itself off. Uh, that's all a matter of monitoring. There's a whole series of checks that happen both to the fuel line flow as well as at the combustion nozzle to make sure everything is, expect uh, is as expected. So the fact that two didn't launch or didn't fire properly, I don't think is going to be a huge issue. Certainly, the amount of fuel that is on board the first stage could have been redirected to the other 31 engines, so they may have stayed operating a few seconds longer with the loss of those two engines. So, no, uh, this vehicle is able to generate a whopping 16 million pounds of thrust. That's nearly a factor of two more than the Artemis rocket, and it's more than uh, two times what the Saturn V did. So the fact that they lost a couple of engines wouldn't have bothered them in the slightest if they were actually in launch mode. Okay, with what has happened uh, today, or sorry, yesterday, um, what happens now? What's, what are the next couple of steps? This has been actually a slower road than most people were expecting. Uh, everybody was more or less expecting Starship, that is both parts here, the Super Heavy Lift and the Starship, to have launched sometime last year on its maiden flight. You can interpret, therefore, that the delay has meant that it's been technologically far more challenging than SpaceX had hoped. There was a bit of a delay with the Environmental uh, Protection Agency not qualifying the launch site because this is in Texas, it's not on the coast. Uh, so there have been a few hiccups along the way. But if all 
can be read properly, we are expecting within the next one to two months, so March or April, for this vehicle to make its maiden flight into orbit. It won't be a long flight. Uh, one orbit or thereabouts is what is anticipated. But if they are able to achieve that, if the specs for the Super Heavy get the Starship into orbit and Starship comes back and splashes down as anticipated, that will be a huge step forward in the in the road to the moon. Uh, SpaceX wants to send some artisans around the moon probably next year, more likely the following year. NASA is counting on Starship to be able to take Artemis astronauts from lunar orbit to the moon and moon surface and back. So there's a lot riding on this launch. SpaceX is obviously taking it carefully and slowly, which I, I can't fault them for that. Paul Delaney with us, Professor of Astronomy, York University. SpaceX uh, fires up uh, its, uh, well, uh, uh, stage booster engine for the Starship spacecraft uh, yesterday and one step closer to the moon. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Um, uh, CBC Radio, uh, Radio Canada President uh, Catherine Tate has been publicly arguing with Pierre Polyevra after the leader of the federal conservatives uh, spoke of defunding the CBC article in the Globe and Mail the other day. Uh, why is the head of CBC picking a fight with Pierre Polyevra? And uh, in a recent gathering, the uh, CBC president said there there's a lot of CBC bashing going on. Someone stoked, somewhat stoked by the leader of the opposition. Uh, no, sorry, she told this to a Global Mail reporter. Uh, I think they feel the CBC is a mouthpiece for the Liberal government. Uh, that's what the head of the CBC said. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you are doing well. Oh, I'm I'm giggling along with you, Scott, on this one. So what are your thoughts? Um, because obviously the big complaint is exactly what the president just said, that they're a mouthpiece for the liberal government, and they're trying to appear uh, unbiased and neutral here. And she's, she's mentioning, whether picking a fight with them or not, who cares? She's mentioning the leader of the opposition. What, what's your take on all of this? Wow, what a bad week for the CBC. I mean, first of all, Catherine Tate, who's the person we're speaking of from the CBC, the first thing she says is that they're going to only go uh, streaming, streaming and no longer be sort of on the mainstream airwaves. So mm-hmm. right away, she, with those remarks, even I read them and went, what? And right away, so you're disenfranchising a large part of rural Canada that that de- that depends on that terrestrial radio or uh, TV in order to get their CBC news. So that was the first thing, and there was absolutely no context around it. It was just like boom. That was the okay. thing, and I mean to, to put it in context, I think it was over ten years, and every media outlet's doing the same thing. However, she, as you said, failed to put that into context. So, so that was her first strike this week. So she should have thought, maybe I'm having a bad week. Maybe I should just keep my mouth shut. But no, no, she has to engage the leader of the opposition, which basically plays straight into their hand. Now, Scott, you know and I know, people have been complaining about the CBC as a public broadcaster since we were children, and that's been yeah. a long time. Yeah. So there, it's not new that people are complaining about the amount of money going to the CBC. Nobody ever really does anything about it. And the other thing that we, other thing that we know about Pierre Polyev 
Kiev, is that he will say these incendiary things. He will say inflammatory things just to get a rise, hopefully, from the opposite side in order to continue his narrative news cycle. And she took the bait. Or, or, to, or, to, or, to, or to confirm them. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. And, and you know, and, and you know what? Catherine Tate is the CBC. She is the news. You are not holier than thou. You are not sitting in an ivory tower where you suddenly deign that you have the right to take on the leader of the opposition or any politician. Just report the news. That's all we ask you to do. We don't care about your opinion. This is not an opinion piece. This is just report the news. And if Paulie ever wants to say he wants to defund the, the, the CBC, stay above the fray. Keep your mouth shut. Act like the the, the head, the important senior leadership of uh, the major bro- of a major broadcaster in Canada. And don't don't deign yourself to have to think that you should be able to take him on. That is just crisis communications 101 scott so what now what now somebody should lock her in a room or put her to put her on vacation for a while <laughs> and just say stop it just stop it and i'm sure that you know that the powers that be that some board member or some somebody from higher up has has taken her to task and maybe she sat there glumly with her arms crossed going well i should be able to say what i want to say you know you know, this is the type of behavior where you really got to look at the type of person who's running English broadcasting here and think, is this the type of person that we want? Should she continue in this job? Is she not going to say anything uh, inflammatory anymore? History says no. She said they, she probably will. So what do you do about that? If I was CBC, I'd be huddled in my HR department taking a good long look at whether Catherine Tate should head up what she's heading up or if she should suddenly be, be moved into, you know, the dreaded special projects. So is the dreaded <laughs> special projects. Yeah, Does the direct the special projects. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, there you go. Uh, we'll find a spot. Um, does this put in question the direction of the CBC? I guess you just answered that and does this obviously discredit the cbc because she's basically admitting what everyone has just accused her of you know do i think that this is going to be widespread discreditation of the cbc no unfortunately scott i know you want me to say yes but no it's not this is this is run 24 hours it's like it's like it's like healthcare. it's a third rail you can't touch the cbc and in a way, although, you know, when you read the Globe and Mail article on this, they say that Catherine Tate uh, crossed the Rubicon, which is, you know, fairly descriptive language um, yeah. on, on how other media feel uh, about her behavior. I, I think that, you know, this is going to run through the, the news cycle. It'll probably end up uh, end today. And, I, and, and unless she throws more salvos over the weekend via Twitter that she can't help herself. And, you know, she's only extending her own news cycle. Scott, when it comes to crisis communications, it happens for two reasons. It could happen for reasons that are out of your control, but most, most often you do it to yourself. Uh, So what does uh, Pierre Polyevre do? 
Oh, well, he's doing it right now. He's certainly making hay out of it. He'll talk about this to anybody who will listen. You know, as the leader of the opposition, all you try and do is come up with narratives and talking points that the media is going to report on. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, But this is certainly a Friday. It's a slow news day. And there are um, other lots of newspapers, such as The Sun and The Globe and Mail, at least, are offering a lot of ink space to this. But do I think it will go beyond Friday? I don't think so. All right. Uh, I've been meaning to ask you uh, your thoughts uh, where we are with the Liberal Party of Ontario and them uh, chasing after the Green uh, Party leader, Mike Schreiner, in order uh, to to woo him on board. Is this dead? Is this going to continue? Where is this, do you think? You know what? I think that we know about it now. I think there will be a lot of backroom discussions that will not appear in the media. And we'll see. I think that it, that would be interesting if he did cross the floor. I, I think it's an interesting gambit, you know, giving Mike Schreiner probably a bigger platform and more say. And I'm sure that's what they're offering him. They say, listen, you can be the head of the Green Party and you can wallow with your one or two seats. Or you can come over to us and, you know, we'll have a few more seats. But, you know, when it comes time to the next election, you will certainly have uh, a bigger platform. And the other question, you know, that comes up with this is that, do the Liberals see Mike Schreiner as a potential new head of their party? I mean, I don't know about that. You know, why else would you be wooing somebody over to your side if you feel that you didn't have the next qualified candidate already in Hmm. hand? And what does this say about the direction of the Liberal Party? They seem to be going, you know, they were once left of center. Now they just keep going left and left and left and left. Um, I don't think it's, it means anything. I think that they're, it'll give them some cover. I think it's optics only and that they feel that they will capture that part of maybe people who vote NDP and an even smaller percentage that vote green. And maybe they'll come over to the Ontario Liberals. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Uh, will it change their absolute direction of left, left, left or, or just left of center? I don't know. I don't think so. I think this is an optics move. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Uh, Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. We've had some fiery discussions this week, Scott. And it's I've been a good it. one. I love it. Thank you, Alyssa. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The new Leger poll has found that the overwhelming majority of Canadians have never heard of the Liberal government's just transition plan. Uh, and more than half of the respondents doubt that, the, uh, that Ottawa can achieve its stated goal of replacing jobs lost in the oil and gas sector due to a transition into uh, the lower economy. And uh, again, at the end of the day, it's a whopping 84% that uh, really have no idea what this is. How much do we actually know about our energy industry. Let's bring in Steve Moss, of Executive Vice President, Vancouver Office for Leger, and with us now. Steve, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me on the show. As you look back, Steve, and take a step back from this, and, and before we break down each individual category and such, uh, what does this tell you about where Canadians' heads are when it comes to uh, our energy industries? Well, there's so much more behind it. You know, you look at the issue of climate change and pre-pandemic, it was, uh, you know, topping the charts as one of the most important issues. And then pandemic, you know, obviously replaced that. But it's, you know, it's always been in the top uh, four or five issues in Canada, you know, besides things like healthcare, inflation, the economy, 
uh, and the like. So Canadians are very aware of it, but they're not really aware of this plan in particular. You know, we saw the poll results that said 16% are aware. But when you inform people about what the plan is about, there's more recognition. And there is actually uh, a fair bit of support for it overall. But there is some division, lots of division across the country, West versus East, uh, demographically speaking. So there's a lot to unpack here. All right. So uh, I, I guess the most important thing is most Canadians don't even know what this is, what this is about, which is basically to get the oil and gas sector off of uh, uh, fossil fuel type of energy and transitioning into a low a, a low carbon economy. At the end of the day, um, are, are we all convinced or is anyone convinced that all of these jobs can re- be replaced? Well, one of the first questions of the poll is, have you heard of the Just Transition Plan? And when you speak those words, yes, it's true that only 16% are aware. But when you start to unravel all the intricacies of it, there is higher awareness and there is there actually is uh, pockets of support. So if you look at overall, when we explain the plan, even if they haven't heard of it, they the 52% of Canadians do agree that it is a good idea to move the economy away from fossil fuels uh, right. in, in Canada versus only uh, 27% who disagree. So de- definitely more in favor than opposed. But you've got these radical differences uh, across the country. So you've got uh, in the West, you know, you've got places like Alberta who disagree, almost 50% disagree. In Quebec, you only have 11% who disagree. Ontario is 26%. So it's very divided across the country. And you're right, it doesn't leave us very secure and confident that uh, the goals of it will be reached. Uh, it seems that Canadians um, uh, are concerned about this. The majority of Canadians are concerned about this, agree that something needs to be done, and need, uh, agree that ne- this needs uh, in t- uh, our attention and is important to them. It, it seems where this all comes apart is how do we do it? It is. It's how do we do it and how do we do it and protect the jobs that do exist? You know, that's where Canadians are quite skeptical. They're not really believing that this transition can happen. You know, only 30 percent are confident that we can actually find uh, displaced workers, good paying replacement jobs. And, you know, that leaves a vast majority, 56 percent of us who are quite skeptical. And of course, again, that division, those in the West just don't buy it. And and those in Quebec and Ontario, uh, a little more confident, but don't know as much about it as, uh, say, the folks uh, on this side of the country. Um, uh, we know Canada produces less than 2% of the world's greenhouse gases. Uh, Canadians, um, uh, how do we feel about uh, other countries who obviously are doing a lot less than we are on this? Um, and again, I'm going to the debate of, uh, you know, rather than, than turning off the taps with less than 2% of greenhouse gases, uh, why don't we help the rest of the world get off coal? Uh, that's where my, my discussion in all of this is. But, but it seems that, again, at the the end of the day it, it, it's it, canadians are, are are not in agreement of how to do this and point fingers to others who are abusing it more it is easy to point the finger and and the telltale stat coming from this is 60 percent of us believe that it's not our problem it's let's blame china let's blame india let's blame those big, larger economies that play a much bigger role but it's it's sort of akin to the recycling argument well uh, I live in a big city. My effort's not going to make much of a difference, so therefore I'm not going to do it. Um, you know, there is some parallels there. 
but more so than that, not just blame other countries, but they're really Canadians are worried that the taxes and the so the thousands of employees that you know help pay for public health care and education in Canada will be lost if we don't have those high paying jobs and if we make that full transition too quickly. Uh, has there been much chatter about, uh, and again, looking at our emissions and the use of Canadian liquid natural gas to help the rest of the world get off coal, what have you? Uh, it seems there is an appetite for that in Canada. There, There is an appetite. You know, we do we do support that. But, uh, you know, that's a tough, a tough transition to make with all those downsides that, that have already been mentioned. Yeah. All right. Steve Mossett with us, Executive Vice President, Vancouver Office of Leger, on uh, how we feel about uh, energy transition. Steve, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks very much. All right. Enough of that. Uh, we've been uh, talking a little bit about the Just Transition Plan, and this is a plan for Ottawa to help Alberta uh, basically get out of the energy, uh, fossil fuel energy business and into uh, the renewable energy business. Uh, a recent uh, article in the conversation uh, by Brendan Boyd entitled How to Win Over Alberta on the Just Transition to a Low Carbon Energy Sector. And he is with us now, Assistant Professor, Department of Anthropology, Economics, and Political Science, McEwen University. Brendan Boyd is with us now. Brendan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, first of all, let's explain what this is. What is the Just Transition Plan that many Canadians don't know much about? Yeah, essentially it's a plan as part of the broader sort of climate change and transition to sustainable energy plan uh, at the federal level that uh, tries to just figure out what to do or how to address the concern of the disruption that it creates in the workforce and what happens with workers who are displaced or have to find, you know, new jobs in uh, as, you know, an energy sector transitions. Um, you know, even if the jobs stay, the, uh, the total jobs stay the same, we know that there's going to be a huge amount of transition uh, and disruption through that process. And so government being involved, trying to figure out what's the best way to do that to limit the amount of, of, of pain and financial hardship that, that those workers would feel. Uh, obviously, we know how um, uh, the premier of Alberta feels about this, but even Rachel Notley, the NDP, says get rid of this. Is this smoke and mirrors or is this visionary? The policy itself, I wouldn't say it's either, to be honest. I think it's a practical sort of um, necessary component of uh, transitioning to uh, low carbon or lower carbon um, energy and society. Uh, because, you know, if we don't take advantage of or don't take consideration of the workers and, you know, people's ability to make a livelihood, um, then politically, obviously, this raises a bunch of questions in terms of pushback. Uh, in terms of po problems with implementation um, and, and you know, protests, all those things that could potentially hypothetically arise if you just said, OK, well, let's see what happens with the transition. You know, government's not going to be too worried about who the winners and losers are coming out of this. I think that's not, you know, that's not a responsible way to address it. Why is this raising so many red flags for Albertans? Why are they so against this? Well, I mean, there's huge concern in Alberta about what the future looks like. You have, you know, yeah. people talking about the fact that, you know, oil and gas, the market for it is going to be dramatically, you know, tightened, if not actually decreased. Um, and where Alberta's energy sector fits into all of that or oil and gas sector fits into all of that really is still up in the air and undecided. And so there are a lot of people here that either have jobs or 
or no people that have jobs in, in the industry and then other people's jobs depend on that industry. And so the concern is, is that this would happen without any consideration for the province's economy and, and the people in, in the province and the, the financial hardships that it would create for them. Um, so it's really, you know, about people's livelihoods. Um, that really raises the alarm bells, I guess, or makes people in the province concerned about it, I think. All right. Uh, your, your piece, Brendan, talks about what we need to do, the government needs to do, federal government needs to do in order to win Alberta over. How do, how do you do this? Yeah, so there's three things that we talk about. The first thing is is local flexibility. And we've seen that a lot of this is drawn from the way that the, the federal government has been uh, interacting with the provinces over the last seven years since 2015 on national climate policy. And one of the big things is trying to, as much as possible, provide local flexibility. And so they did it around the carbon tax in terms of giving a bunch of different options for ways that people could meet um, the federal sort of benchmark or standard. And then, you know, pretty, pretty relaxed in the details, really, in terms of trying to find ways to make it work for the provinces. And, and we think, you know, that's something similar that the province can do on the just transition. Make sure that it's not a just transition for the country, but a just transition for the country that specifically reflects the local realities of individual regions, including Alberta. The second part is looking at trade-offs. There are things that Alberta wants. There's obviously a range of issues that the Alberta government and the federal government are dealing on, not just, you know, not just this. And so thinking about particularly in the energy sector, um, what are some things that can potentially, you know, uh, not to put too crude a phrasing on it, but but buy or, or get the support of Alberta um, in terms of other things that they might be able to want. So that's worked in the past. Um, and that's something that maybe could be looked at in the future. And then finally, the last part is about providing funding and support. This is a big ask. This is a big ask uh, for the province in Alberta and, you know, uh, providing financial support will help with that in terms of saying, look, we understand this is a big ask, just showing the recognition, but then also, you know, providing money to potentially support this, ease the transition, try to try to deal with some of the, the pain that this might cause. How much of this transition involves uh, Canadian liquid natural gas? Um, we've heard, certainly heard that discussion, you know, going back and forth uh, of late. Does that fit in, in into this at all? Yeah, I mean, that one's always a tough one, right? Because a lot of people see it as a bridge fuel, right? That kind of bridges the way between, yeah. you know, fossil fuels and coal, like uh, oil, and, oil and gas and coal, uh, like gasoline. Uh, and then getting to, you know, say renewables and electric vehicles, because it does have, you know, a lower carbon output than say coal for electricity. Um, sure. But others are, you know, quite saying are, are more likely to say that, you know, we need to sort of skip that step and move, um, directly to renewables because they'll point to the fact that, you know, scientists in the end are talking about, you know, sort of set goals around 2050. So. Uh, we'll remain to be seen. I, I, my, yeah, we'll, we'll see where it fits in. The details are still coming, right? And so the specific role of natural gas and, and liquefied natural gas will, I think, are, are still to be determined and kind of negotiated over. I guess my question in all of this, Brendan, is if we can't get the world off coal, if we can't get the world off coal, how do we get them off of everything? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I would say that there has been some pretty, you know, pretty big strides. I mean, maybe, you know, obviously there are people that would say we should be moving faster, but there's been some pretty big strides, you know, in Ontario, obviously around coal um, and the federal government has set pretty ambitious standards for the rest of the provinces that are still on coal. Um, obviously, there are other places outside of Canada where maybe it's a bit more of a, of a challenge. 
Um, so, you know, I think there's progress, a slow progress being made there. Um, but yeah, it, it's a huge one, right? Lots of people talk about this as being like a Marshall Plan, something that happened after World War II as a, a huge, huge societal um, and government yeah. heavy lift to try to change things. And it's it's not easy. Um, and it's not easy to sum up sort of what would have to happen, right? Because there's so many things that would have to happen. And we don't necessarily even have control over all of those things. A lot of it is going to be some luck and some, you know, looking into the headwinds and making some some reasonable choices in the future. So, yeah, it, it's tough I and mean, it's definitely not easy. But, you know, I always try to look at the incremental progress and hope that that locks us into things that pay bigger dividends down the road. All right. Brendan Boyd with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Anthropology, Economics and Political Science, McEwen University, talking about the Just Transition Plan. Uh, thanks so much, Brendan, for the time. Be well. Yeah, thank you. You as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Um, <laughs> there's another um, high altitude object, uh, not necessarily a balloon. Don't know. I'm not sure that. We'll find out moments from now. But another high altitude object has been brought down by the U.S. government on orders of President Biden, this time over Alaska, to get the latest. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. What can you tell us here? Uh, it says high altitude object. Is Do we know if it's a balloon or something else? No, the Pentagon uh, uh, is being a little bit cagey in what they see uh, or at least what they saw in the sky. All they're saying is that it was an object. It was at a high altitude, but it wasn't at the same height that that initial balloon uh, was flying at up around 60,000 feet. This was around 40,000 feet, which is what caused more concern and sounded more alarms for not only the White House, but for people in the Defense Department. We do know from both the National Security Council and from defense officials at the Pentagon that this was far smaller than the initial balloon, roughly the size of a car. Uh, They're unclear of what the payload is. Uh, That is going to be what they have to try and figure out once they go and collect pieces from it. So was the main concern and the reason for downing this because of its lower altitude and 40,000 feet, perhaps, um, you know, conflicting with air traffic? That's that's precisely what the Pentagon says, is that 40,000 feet is in the zone of commercial traffic. uh, And there is was a fear that this could cause some kind of an issue uh, with with any planes that happen to be in the area. Now, obviously, this was in a, you know, really remote part uh, of the north. What at least we're hearing from the White House, the northeastern part of Alaska towards uh, the northwestern part of Yukon, uh, along with, you know, an area over the Arctic Ocean. So this is not obviously a heavily populated area a much smaller zone for the debris to fall uh, as well but it is that 40,000 foot height that they are concerned of about still not saying what kind of object this was that was quote-unquote hovering we know the first balloon came in through the um uh from alaska through the northwest territories bc alberta saskatchewan and at the bottom into montana we didn't really hear anything until it hit montana uh is anyone able to have seen this or as you said in such a sparsely populated area you wouldn't see it I mean, it's 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 unlikely that anybody was in the area and spotted this themselves. We know from the Pentagon that this entered U.S. airspace on uh, on February 9th. So yesterday on on Thursday, and they sent up a couple of aircraft to monitor it, to look at it. And then ultimately, uh, the decision was made on Friday on advice from 
the Defense Department in consultation and a green light given by the president to shoot down this object. And we were told by the Pentagon that this was uh, a single plane that went up or a single jet that went up and, and, and you know, made the contact with this you know object in the air and shot it down. But you know, it was in the air for, for about 24 hours before they were able to bring it down, far less than the original balloon, which coasted across the entire country. But there is a, a real heightened sense of vigilance here to to get to the bottom of this. So why are we hearing so much about these now? Is this going on more than we know it is? Why now? Well, I mean, look, the, the situation that took place over the last week uh, was, you know, was unheard of. The former president, the former administration, they really lashed out at the current Biden administration and said that they dropped the ball on this. But we've got to remember that this happened, at least according to the Pentagon, three times during the Trump administration. Uh, it didn't linger as long, but this is something that obviously has gone on before. We saw a balloon uh, in the sky from pictures over Central and South America. We also know from defense officials now that roughly uh, 40 countries have experienced some form of balloon whether it's from China or whether it's from some other nation, this is something that takes place. Uh, and, you know, countries like China will say that it's for meteorological or climatolo- uh, climatological reasons. Uh, but defense officials say that, look, these balloons, at least the one that, that crashed into or was shot down over the Atlantic, had abilities to collect information, whether it's radar, whether it is communications, whether it is picking up any other kind of signal. There's a concern. It's been going on. It is continuing to go on. uh, And that is why we likely heard about this so quickly today. Uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand and uh, the Defense Secretary, U.S. Defense Secretary meeting. Um, Do we have a handle on surveillance of the North here? Well, absolutely. I mean, look, NORAD uh, is, uh, you know, in charge of this and has uh, the significant capability to be able to uh, continuously monitor what is happening in the skies over uh, North America. Uh, You know, when you look at something at 40,000 square feet, at least according to the experts here, which I'm not one, but I can kind of, you know, figure out what they're trying to say, 40,000 feet is easier to track something because there are other Mm. bits of radar that will pick things up. Once you head up into, you know, areas of the stratosphere, 60,000 feet and higher, it becomes much more difficult to track things uh, as well. You know, things on radar don't always show up what they are. You know, you look at a regular radar, it may look like it's raining and it may just be a a series of birds that are being picked up by it. So there's a lot to try and figure out when it comes to what's being looked at. But NORAD does what it needs to do. And in consultation with U.S. and Canadian defense officials, they do what they can to monitor the sky. And we remember when the uh, balloon was shot down over the Carolinas or just off the coast there uh, in they went to gather uh, what they could. Same thing happening here. From what we understand, yes, uh, this obviously landed in a far more remote area and it landed on on ice because the Arctic Ocean uh, is frozen right now. So, you know, whatever kind of material is still intact will be collected. Worth pointing out to Scott that the balloon that was over the ocean, uh, they are still trying to collect pieces that are further below the surface to try and put mm. things back together. So that is one thing that's under investigation. This will be another balloon that's under investigation once they get to this remote area. A lot of answer, a lot of questions right now. Very, very very few answers. Uh, we seem to identify quite uh, readily that it was the initial balloon, um, a weather balloon, and then, of course, it became a surveillance balloon. Do we even know where this one is from? If it, no, whatever uh, object, whatever object it is. Yeah, whatever the object is, all we know from the Pentagon is that it was traveling in 
a Northeast style fashion when it was taken down by uh, this fighter jet. So, you know, whether or not that was picked up in some kind of Arctic jet stream or whether it was traveling in some you know way, one way or another, all we know is that it was going Northeast. What we understand, though, is that it did not have the same kind of apparatus on it to allow it to be maneuvered. So that will be a part of this investigation. How was it moving? Was it simply just floating? Was it even a balloon? Those are questions that are being asked of the Pentagon and the National Security Council, including from myself, and we haven't been told yet. Uh, has um, Obviously, we haven't heard from China. Nobody's identified it as their object at this point. Uh, what does this do for relationships between the two, U.S. and China? I mean, look, the, the U.S. and China's relationship is already strained. It's been strained for several years. The balloon situation put a further kink into that relationship. So, too, last week the, did the decision from uh, the U.S. military to uh, set itself up on more bases throughout the Philippines, obviously further uh, furthering the anger and aggression from uh, Beijing. There was an attempt to try and put a reset on the kind of geopolitical crisis that's existed between these two countries. That is likely paused now. The rift is going to grow wider. Last week, when that balloon was spotted, uh, Chinese defense officials wouldn't even answer calls from the Pentagon. I think that gives a very clear sign as to where this relationship's at right now. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Watch Global Tonight for more on all of this. Uh, Reggie, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Happy Friday. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, it's Friday. Uh, Let's go to one of the best kitchen parties you'll ever find. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, Scott, I wish I was at a kitchen party, but you're second best, buddy. Oh, well, there you go. I would love to go to a kitchen party with you. I bet you that would be a blast. And then get your buddy over from Great Big C. We'd have a big sing-song there. It'd be hilarious. Bring your mother. Send the money to go to Newfoundland, and I'll make sure I'm there at the same time. You could do the show from St. John's. Well, you got enough Newfoundlanders in Hamilton area, so they'd like that. That would be fabulous. As I always said, it is it is by far the friendliest place on earth, that is for sure. All right. Uh, speaking of friendly, my goodness, I'm watching a news conference today. It's in Ashwigan Six Nations right here in, uh, near Hamilton. And and there's uh, the deputy, uh, uh, deputy prime minister, Christian. Freeland, uh, the premier, Doug Ford, and my goodness, I, they're, they're just, they're getting along. They're talking very, uh, 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 very positively about each other. Doug Ford actually says, um, you know, all the premiers love Christia Freeland, but not as much as him, something to that effect. How do you explain this from the big bad bull in the China shop? <laughs> Boy, it's amazing what money does. Hey, a check, a check, a check. I mean, Christia Friedland uh, and the Trudeau Liberals uh, are writing a check to the provinces. I think um, Canadians want to see their leaders, at least on this one, get on. That's why you haven't seen usual posturing about uh, about the health care money. I mean, people are saying it's not enough, but nobody's not taking the money. Uh, and I think they recognize on health care that it better look like they're cooperating because uh, the general public has no patience uh, for uh, for squabbling over something that is so badly broken. 
Um, it, it, it's uh, it, it's fascinating to see how the persona of all of this is is has changed. I remember uh, all of, obviously the the much anticipation around the healthcare meeting between the premiers and the prime minister, uh, and then of course it came out and it was obviously not what everybody thought it was, and 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 disappointing in some respects. But of course they're going to take it, and and the first thing out of Ford's mouth was I'm very grateful to the federal government for this. Uh, of course went on to say it was a down payment, but. But using language like very grateful, very grateful that the prime minister came to the meeting. This is not the this is not the Pierre Polyevra style of conservatism. No, but Pierre Polyevra's not governing Ontario. Doug Ford is right. I mean, he's he's got weight lines. He's got uh, burnt out nurses and burnt out physicians, and he's trying to to use his term, be a bit innovative. I think that one of the big takeaways from the meeting, Scott, and again, the politics of this, which wouldn't have happened even two years ago, no. Justin Trudeau is now carrying the big stick and saying, no, no, you can't do that private service um, delivery of hips, knees, and cataracts. You can't go down that. Nobody's saying that right now. And in fact, uh, Trudeau hasn't taken the bait when it's been offered to him by both the NDP and, and the media to uh, slam Ford on potentially providing more private service delivery of public medicine. It is the public that has made this happen. It really isn't the politicians. It's the public uh, demanding oh, yeah. change after going through a three-year global pandemic. Is this a is this a turning point? Not so much even for healthcare, but a turning point. It's like, oh, wait a sec. People are in a different headspace now, and they want results. I don't know if it's a I don't know if it's a turning point, but it's certainly a, a key inflection point. Because look at some of the I think it was Leger this week, or might have been Ipsos Reid. Anyway, one of the major polling companies wasn't ours, but had some data out that said, you know, a significant number of Canadians are open to private service delivery, and that wouldn't have been the case ten years ago. But it it, it is a you know an inflection point for politicians to recognize, hey. Pick your battle lines carefully and seize the moment that's being given to you to try and uh, rebuild or re reestablish healthcare in this country. Be careful. Nobody's saying they want pay for service, but people are saying they don't mind if there are more private service delivery options of public health care. Does this back Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, into a corner? He was on the show uh, just last week and, and was very adamant that uh, you want to solve this. It's simple. You just add more money to the system and you hire more doctors and nurses. My goodness, if it was only that easy, why didn't we do it? But but obviously, the public opinion, as you just stated, is very much changed on that issue. Has he backed himself into a corner here? Especially uh, think, on one hand saying that and on the other being able to, you know, to flip the switch on the government at any time. Uh, I, I think he's playing to a crowd that is already in his corner and that if he doesn't play to that crowd, he probably finds himself in a precarious place. He probably needs to be for his own protection uh the the voice of all public all the time but i mean it's entirely hypocritical right we've talked about this before where did jack layton the late jack layton go to get his hernia done where did he go shoulder shoulder mm. world-class facility where private service delivery provides public health care options where does Mr. Singh go to get his blood taken? I doubt that he's gone every time he's required to have his blood taken to a public hospital. He may have gone to a private 
clinic that does publicly funded laboratory testing. He's probably gone to a doctor who has a private medical corporation to provide public services. I mean, like it's everywhere, so stop pretending that it isn't. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks for your time. Have a great weekend. The bottle of rum's on the way, Scott, for the kitchen party. Okay. Ooh wee! I'm <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready to kiss the cod. All right, have a good one. It is. There, buddy. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, lots of political activity going in, uh, going on this week. Rather, let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Nelson, thank you for your time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, sir. So, Nelson, earlier today in Oshwigan, uh Six Nations, uh, we saw Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland and Premier Doug Ford uh, talking about a new battery storage facility, the largest project of its kind, uh, provincial, federal, and, and obviously Six Nations coming together to, uh, uh, to to make this all happen and such. But was which was really obvious was just uh, the the bubbliness of, of uh, both uh, the. Deputy Prime Minister and the Premier, uh, the Premier at one time saying uh, that all the pri- uh, Premiers love Christia Freeland, but nobody more than him. I mean, it's just unbelievable. What are your thoughts on what we're seeing now uh, and the relationship that the Premier and the Feds seem to be developing here or have developed over time? Well, I think it depends on the issue. Yeah, good point. Uh, I mean, on a lot of uh, issues, uh, Ford hasn't hesitated to attack the government. For example, uh, I think it was uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I remember it was in the summer, that he was blaming the federal government for COVID, saying it was because border restrictions weren't uh, weren't tight enough. And uh, But if, look, even at that point, when it looked like they were at odds, the federal and provincial governments are all the time working on joint projects. And what strikes me about this one is how run-of-the-mill it is. What is the interesting, um, what should I say, the the interesting aspect of this, I find, is that uh, you've got these aboriginal groups, these indigenous groups that are supportive. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, from what I can make out, is that the project is on their land, and they're being guaranteed or told that 97% of the jobs are going to be for them. So it seems like a win-win-win for everybody. Uh, most of the money is not coming from out of the provincial budget. It's coming from, for what I can see, the Canada Infrastructure Bank. And, polit- and politicians know, know that the public likes to see federal provincial cooperation Hmm. so if there's an opportunity to flash that card that's what they do it's when their interests are not aligned that they'll fight like for example over health care funding right where ford ford is saying no 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 this is just a down payment we want more money and yeah, but even on that, Nelson, even on that, Nelson, and I was pretty surprised at this because, again, we were waiting very much for this much-anticipated meeting between the Prime Minister and the Premiers and such, and then it was obvious it wasn't going to be what everybody had thought or hoped it was going to be or what have you, uh, and I was waiting for it to hit the fan at that point. But oh. instead, uh, you know, the the Premier said, we're ve- he started his conversation by saying, we're very grateful uh, for the money that we have, even though, as you said, it was later a 
down payment. And he also said, we're very grateful that the prime minister came and met with us today. So this is a completely different tone from what is the stereotypical, uh, um, you know, uh, confrontational conservative per se. Yes. Now, the media has been playing up this whole health care meeting as some sort of deal. Yeah. Well, the provinces, it, that's all nonsense. There's no deal here to be made. In a deal, yeah. uh, the two sides exchange something. I'm going to give you so much money if you give me your house. Yeah. I'm going to give you this amount of money for an appliance or not, and I'll buy mm-hmm. it or not. There's no deal here. And people don't understand that. And that's the same case with equalization payments. What the federal government says is, this is what we're prepared to give you. You don't want it? Okay, we won't give it to you. Of course you're going to take the money. Yeah. And of course, in this case, in healthcare, yeah, you know what? And we'd like more. So, and um, remember, the premiers have been attacking Trudeau for not calling such a meeting for the past two years. So why was the meeting even called? The Mm. meeting was called from the Fed's point of view, because it's only Trudeau that can convene a meeting of himself and all the premiers. Premiers can talk among themselves, and they do meet together, but it doesn't make the same news. And so why did Trudeau call the meeting? Trudeau called the meeting because they're going to be coming down with a budget in the next month or two. They haven't told us when, but it usually happens at the end of March or in April, could go a little later, and they want to flash this in the budget. So they've made it public now, and they'll boast about it again when they bring down the budget. Mm -hmm. Although, as you said, uh, I don't really think this so-called deal, which I don't consider a deal, is going to change very much. So is this reform that everybody's demanding, Nelson, or is this just more Band-Aids? Yes, it's just more Band-Aids. There's no reform here. And as we've talked before, it's, it, it's, it's very difficult for the federal government to impose reforms. The federal government has a lot of money. It, it, it brings in huge revenues but it doesn't have the responsibilities for delivering these social programs like health care. So the reforms have to come from the provinces. But those were all on condition of there being reform. The money would be there only if there were reforms. Yes, but it doesn't work that way because the money goes out to you and you can say, I'm going to spend it on this, that, and the other. But once you get the money, it just goes into your piggy bank. Yeah, and the yeah. feds and the feds aren't going to in the middle of transferring funds because they've transferred some every year. Are going to say, "Oh, you know what? We don't think you've met this condition, and we're not going to give you this tranche of money," because then, oh, the headline becomes, "Hey, why are you discriminating against our province? You're holding back money that we're entitled to." And that would really look bad for the feds. So this has been a constant problem. The feds always say, we'd like you to do this, that, and the other. And the, and the provinces will say, just give us the money. It's our jurisdiction, no conditions. But what is interesting in what's happened in the negotiations, or, well, I won't even call them negotiations, because Trudeau just came in. He was prepared to sit with them for two hours. Nothing gets settled in that when you've got 13, 14 different people talking is that what is different that I've noticed in the last number of years is we're moving to more what the media have been calling side deals. And those, in a way, are deals because the 
in addition to a, a general top-up in, uh, in more federal spending on health care, and it isn't that big, and it's you know it's over ten years. Yeah. Just as the 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 big change is that they're tweaking about twenty five percent, I believe it is, of all this new so called new money. It, so and tweaking it for the uh, different conditions of different provinces, and we saw that with daycare as well. When right. Ontario, hey, Ontario held out longer than anybody else. You didn't mm-hmm. see cooperation there. Everybody got in on it. And then, hey, what was happening with Ontario? And the reason they're tweaking it differently is different provinces have different issues. Some populations very old. In others, oh, we got a lot more immigrants coming in, you know. So our housing policy has to be different than a a place where you got population decline or stagnation. Nelson, we're going to have to, we're out of time right now. We're going to have to cut you off, but thanks again. Nelson Wiseman, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, uh, talking about relationships between the provinces and the Fed, specifically with healthcare. Nelson, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You as well. All right, the world keeping an eye on the rising tensions between China and the United States. A couple of particular stories uh, sticking out, well, like a spy balloon on a sunny day. Uh, and we have to tell you that uh, we certainly know about the shooting down of the balloon um, in U.S. airspace last week. Uh, a second object, we don't know if it's a balloon or not, but has been shot down over Alaska today, uh, obviously with the approval of U.S. President Joe Biden. Uh, we don't know where it originated from uh, or, again, the type of uh, craft or object that it was, um, but obviously more news on that as uh, it becomes available. Uh, when the first balloon was shot down, uh, Beijing reportedly refused a call from the U.S. on their crisis line, which, of course, they have established in case of situations situations like this, but you got to pick up the phone. Uh, the worry is now stirred up uh, by a leaked Pentagon memo as well that predicts just outright confrontation uh, with China. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He's with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Good afternoon, Scott. I knew it would just be a matter of time before we chatted about this again, Elliot. A second <laughs> object. We don't know if it was a balloon. We don't know. All we do know is it was smaller. It was shot down over Alaska, and we don't know its origin. What are your thoughts on what we do and don't know? Well, it's. Uh, I, I, I think vocabulary is very, very significant. The fact that it's not been identified as a balloon nor its origin, but we do know about it apparently is that it does not have the self-guiding capacity that uh, the balloon did last uh, week. It's a different, a different kind of um, floating object. But the fact that the U.S. is calling it that, an object, is interesting. I've been following this fairly closely on your behalf, of course, Scott. So last, um, <laughs> last week, just before, two days before the uh, shooting down took place of the definitely identified Chinese balloon, what China was calling it on their own TV was a high-altitude aerial balloon, and that's how they identified it. It was then shot down two days later. Now it's being called by the Chinese a Chinese civilian airship. That, hmm. to me, is a very significant wow. change of the um, nomenclature and raises a whole different level of threat. Now they're saying it was a, a civilian airship. They also then go on to say in various places, if you piece together the bits and pieces, that the U.S. having shot down a civilian airship opens up its own uh, airships. Uh, 
civilian aircraft to in, uh, enhance risk. And they also go right. on to say, you know, it took a, a a jet airplane and a missile to bring that thing down. Not that we would do it again. Not that we ever would do this because it was not that kind of ship. It's really just a, a, a weather balloon. But what that means is you could just flood the U.S. with these kinds of things and they have to keep sending up their, mm. <laughs> their, their missiles and their jets. And it would just exhaust uh, the U.S. Well, that's precisely what they're doing with Taiwan, Scott. They they mm. keep sending armadas of airplanes over right up to the border and past the border, the dividing line in the air, and shooting missiles over Taiwan. They are trying to exhaust Taiwan. So they're saying, look, this could happen to you. So uh, <laughs> um, uh, is, does this say that Canada and the United States uh, are not doing enough or are not equipped enough to monitor our own airspace? Why are we seeing so many of these now? Why is this happening now? Uh, well, one of the things that's kind of impressive is the description we have so far is that this is really a very small object, whatever it is, that it's about the same size as a small car, and it was detected immediately. Uh, what One of the lessons to take from this, and this is a lesson including Canada's, NORAD is working. Apparently, something as small as that will be picked up immediately if it's determined to be a threat, and mm. this was. It can then be dealt with as a threat. Uh, we just agreed to upgrade uh, NORAD, the combined American and Canadian air defense uh, networks. So one of the lessons of all this is, yeah, it does seem as if these systems are working and Canada is part of that system. Uh, we've heard lots of chatter, leaked memos, whatever, about conflict between China and the United States. Uh, is it a matter of time before China just demands Taiwan and does with it what it did with Hong Kong? Yes, and before that, of course, Tibet. And don't forget mm. Xinjiang while we're at it. And what's going on in Hong Kong, I'm glad you mentioned it, is it's, it shows that they will act and, and then say, well, the world is letting us do this, so well, we can do something else. Is war inevitable with China is the question you're asking, and that's been one that we've been all dealing with for some time. It does suggest that we do know that Taiwan is on the to-do list for Xi Jinping. He intends to somehow or another bring it into Mother China. He said initially, the, the great national rejuvenation of China that under our leadership is going to be so compelling that Taiwan will want to come in and join us. Well, I think that's gone now after COVID yeah. and, um, and the response there. The, that leads to a military option. And, of course, I, the U.S. is now beefing up all across the region. One of the possibilities that's been mentioned in the press as to why China would send this kind of a balloon that they did, uh, a surveillance balloon, is that this is a response to the enhanced presence of America, a new bases being set up in the Philippines. And I find that itself very intriguing. So all of this adds up to the fact that we do have a, a situation of two global powers. And the irony of what we just saw last week, the shooting down of that balloon, is that Anthony Blinken was sent as a follow-up to the opening that Xi Jinping yeah. and Biden did. So in order to put guardrails, in order to see this doesn't happen, the fact that they refuse a call from the Secretary of Defense of the United States is very worrying indeed. Why would you set up a hotline if you're not going to answer the hotline? 
Yeah, there's not answering is a way to show that they're really upset that yeah, uh, this yeah. this weather balloon got shot down. Now, Janet Yellen is due to go there, the Treasury Secretary, but the timing hasn't been set. I've been trying to find whether both the U.S. and China are trying to raise this up and escalate the issue or whether they're going to now take steps to de-escalate it and say, OK, we had a little problem. Now let's get back to trying to find a way to work together sufficiently so that we do not lead to what you ask is war inevitable. And uh, right now it's kind of mixed uh, feeling. The, the Chinese are calling this a farce, the shooting down of the balloon, and uh, they're calling it a, a bunch of other th things as well. So what we have right now is that two the two largest uh, economies and military powers on Earth are competing with each other in a way that is very worries, worrying indeed. And you have to wonder, you know, is economics bigger than all of this? I mean, they, you know, they're talking about this deal, these deals and whatever. I mean, they go out the window as soon as war starts. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, uh, China-U.S. Relations. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well and have a great weekend. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. I understand he's eating wings in the control room. You're going to get in crap, man. What are you doing? Oh, so I came in. I was walking up the steps and Will number one, because we only hire people named Scott or Will at this station, apparently. <laughs> um, Will number one says, is wings in the cafeteria? And so, of course, I didn't break stride and immediately turned left instead of right to get in here. And yeah, there were some wings. And um, you know what? They were, t I was just saying to other Will, Will number two, they were tasty. But unfortunately, uh, I have discovered in recent, the last year or so, that I have an incredibly high tolerance for spicy food. I love stuff to be really spicy. And this was, they were I fine. can't do it. I yeah. love spicy food. And people around me are dying. And I'm like, well, it's warm. Yeah, there you go. Feeling hot, hot. Buster Poindexter. How about that? Um, That's like my daughter. She brings like her own bottle of hot sauce. Oh, and yeah. whenever she's got, she twerks it up a notch. Oh, so well, one of the things was, so there's a company in town. You, have you ever seen the YouTube sh uh, show Hot Ones? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we've talked with them. Yeah, All yeah. Right, so there's a company in town, Dawson's Hot Sauce. They're on Barton Street. I would encourage anyone to go buy some hot sauce from them. They're fantastic. You did this, didn't you? Didn't you sample it? So, yeah. So about a year ago when they had their third bottle on this show, show, I went with the guy who makes it, with the guy whose last name is Dawson, and we did the ran the gauntlet. We tried all of yeah. the sauces from lightest to hottest. And by the time we got to the end, it's like called triple X scorpion tongue burning. You were, you were doing the last tasting from the washroom, weren't you? No, and I was fine. And I was like, okay, it's war. And he, he looked <laughs> Dawson's like. Dawson's looking at you like, what kind of freak are you, man? Yeah, because he was dying. He was in pain. There's a video of it. You can go on YouTube. And he's in pain. And I'm like, well, it's, you know, there's a little tang to it. And he's like, oh, this is not right. And so anyway, I, I bought a bunch of bottles from him, like the 9 out of 10s and 10 out of 10s and guzzling it. And it's like, okay, no problem. Don't know don't know what's wrong with me. I think my tongue so is So maybe you just, you yeah, you burned out the game. That's all you've done. There's no filter there at all. It's just whatever's happening. It's like, you know, the temperature gauge in your car goes, you know, from hot to cold to hot. You've just, it's gone. There's nothing there. I mean, I sit across from my kids and not a word of a lie. I've got a paper towel over my bald head, you know, trying to wipe the sweat off it. Not a word of a lie. And you, that doesn't, you don't crack a sweat on your melon? 
Uh, not usually. And then for it was really funny because for Christmas, um, Ben, who, you know, you have Ben sometimes on as your operator yep. and Ben yep. who works on my show, uh, he got me a jar of hot, bottle of hot sauce for Christmas, the hottest he could find called Flaming Flatulence. And it's delicious. It's called all. Flaming Flatulence? Yep, yep. And it's delicious, but it's warm. But it's um, like, again. Like flatulence. It's, But it's not. How do I say this delicately? It's not having the effect that the name would suggest. Really? Which is, which is, well, which is relief You're to everybody You're like iron guts. Apparently. But I'm worried that one of these days I'm going to end up with some sort of giant ulcer because I'm just eating so much of this stuff. <laughs> I've just blown the lining right out of my stomach. Do you know what a blue angel is? Uh, I know what a Dutch oven is. Is it the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> it's not far off. It's when you light the match. Uh, yeah, and oh. you know, and, and and you light the match to whatever that stuff was just called. You did, yes, uh, yeah, and and so it'd be interesting to see, you know, what a blue angel. Although that might be a hazard. You may you may end up burning the house down. That's right. You may see you like may that. see a mushroom cloud over my house, but uh, <laughs> but I right. feel fine. It's just Radley's <laughs> taken out his house and all of his neighbors as well. But his tongue is fine. Yeah, he's yeah, really <laughs> temperature wise, he's okay. But look out, it's yeah, a napalm afternoon. So what's Super Bowl going to be like for you? Are you just like, uh, what are those you know, wacky chili, the wacky everything? And then, you know, uh, you know, we'll have uh, there will be some hot sauce on something. I, I you know, I, I don't know. It's I Super Bowl. I got I was saying this yesterday on, on my show or I don't know, maybe it was on your show. I can't remember. But I, I, my family, my, my son and I are both Buffalo Bills fans. And so, you oh, know, don't give me your, oh, don't give me this. It's not your team. So you're not going to play. Well, I'll watch like really I'll watch, but I have absolutely no rooting interest. Well, I do have a rooting interest. I really hope that Kansas city loses and loses badly. I hope Kansas city loses a hundred to nothing. And every single player on the team suffers a just temporary, but groin injury, um, just temporary. I don't want anyone to be like permanently disfigured. Just can't stand that team because and you want to know why they have played the Buffalo bills. I think seven of the last eight, Eight games against the Bills yeah. in Kansas City, yeah. the way the schedule's gone. Yeah. And the one that was in Buffalo was the COVID year when there was nobody in the stands. The NFL yeah. has handed Kansas City trips after trip after trip to the Super Bowl. And so I hope, I pray, I am I will I will give up hot sauce for a year if Kansas City loses by a humiliating score. Do you, you have to I'm drink anything for. after that? Do you have to drink anything after the hot sauce? Like, does it make you thirsty? Like, you need a well, ice water or a coke not, or a not, keg of beer or whatever? No, not. I mean, not like milk or yogurt or anything. Just you know, I'll, it's it's often right. salty. So I re, I do want to do though. <laughs> I, I don't have the I don't have anywhere near the. I mean, I'm not a celebrity, so I'm not going to get on that show. But I would love to do that show just to see. How yeah, I would, just to call them out. Well, just to see, because you get some of sure. these celebrities who go on, and by the time they get to the second wing, they're begging for mercy, and it's like, come on, tough it up. Yeah. No, that'd be me. All right, do you want to make a prediction for this game? Uh, it's not really a I'm going with Philadelphia 92, Kansas City 0. It's not a prediction. It's more of a hope. More of a dream. All it's right. more of a dream. <laughs> Clearly, this man is whacked out on hot sauce even as we speak. Uh, <laughs> no, there was you, not Scott. on the wings. I wish there, there was. <laughs> That's the problem. There was Where's, no hot sauce. That's right. There was. Why did they send us wings without any sauce on them, says Scott? No, that's our high test. You're just, you, have, you got an iron gut or something. All right, Scott, have a great show. Have great a good weekend. weekend. You too. Thanks.
for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Joe wrote in to say, The first object balloon could have and should have been shot down outside Alaska before, not after it's conducted its intelligence mission. I mean, China gave us COVID, lied about it to boot. Who in the hell would ever let anything from China's military come here? Pandemic 2.0, spread from a balloon. I truly fear Canadians are blind to the realities of the world. That's a very, very spicy comment there, Joe.